Welcome to Education Suspended, a podcast focused on exploring, engaging, and dialoguing with those in education who are passionate about changing the status quo and evolving the archaic system we have inherited. Education Suspended is a production of Intricate Roots Educational Consulting Services. Our editor and production manager is Katie Kunin. Our producer is Jamie Higa, and our music is provided by Poets Row. Hey everyone, welcome to Education Suspended episode 24. Jessica Pfeiffer here. I hope you all are doing great. We are in that crazy phase between Thanksgiving break and the upcoming winter break, which is just everyone's favorite part, said no one ever, but keep kicking. We are so close to having a little hiatus and a chance for us just to refill our buckets. In today's episode, we connect with Chris Jaffe, who's the CEO and founder of Jaffe Emergency Services. I have the privilege of actually training some of his staff across the nation right now, an amazing group of people. This is a really good conversation. And just to be truly transparent, we actually recorded this going into this school year. So as you might remember, we kind of hold on to some of our interviews, but it felt appropriate to release right now. I think for a couple of reasons, we're seeing an increase in risk behaviors from our students. For me personally, our district has dealt with several shootings in the last month. And so I just felt like it was, it was the time to go back and to listen to what Chris says. And I love that through all of it, through what he's doing, but what we see and what we need is that there is that through line of connection. And regardless of what we're talking about uh, and, and, the, and the risk that we're talking about, that focused must be relational. And if we don't have that, our risk is going to increase. Chris and his company do an amazing job of trying to be as proactive as possible to prevent emergencies from happening. I mean, there's only so much you can do, but they really kind of take on that whole community lens and understand that as many vantage points as we can get, the better. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this conversation. It is, you know, it's one that needs to happen and it's one that is harder to have. We're grateful for you all being here. We hope that you enjoy this episode. So sit back and here is Education Suspended with Chris Jaffe. We've actually been meeting for about 30 minutes and just bantering the whole time. Our theme is going to be to try to land the plane in a place that makes sense. But we are super excited to have Chris Jaffe here, who is the CEO and founder of Jaffe Emergency Services. And I will not give everyone the backstory for how our paths crossed, but essentially I'm extremely glad that they did. We're so excited to have you here. It's such an honor. If you would introduce yourself to our listeners, tell folks what it is you do, essentially how you got there, and a little bit of your story. That sounds great. Well, I'm so excited to be here and to connect with you all. Um, I'll I'll share that, you know, currently I am, as you said, founder and CEO of Jaffe Emergency Services, which basically means I help schools prepare for, respond to, and recover from emergencies of all sorts. Um, our work is often geared to uh, natural disasters and human-created incidents like lockdowns, active shooters, police chases, and things like that. But our work is also uh, really oriented around prevention where prevention is possible. And so we do that through placing security officers on school campuses, by placing health coordinators on school campuses, and by teaching the strategies of identifying risks early to schools all across the country and a few around the world. Just a few, though. <laughs> I... Uh, 
to really go back, um, I actually was born um, to uh, a, a mother who was a prostitute in St. Louis. Um, I was the fifth of five kids who were removed from the home. Had a really, really tumultuous first couple of years of life, moving from orphanage to orphanage, and at one point was in a foster home with uh, another child who actually passed away. Um, so to say that care was a question mark is probably an understatement, but I eventually was uh, lucky enough to be adopted. I, I think it was probably my hair, <laughs> my, my mom, um, and she adopted me um, and gave me a, a shot at a completely different life than, um, than I would have had otherwise. But I share that, you know, for, for a couple of reasons. The first is I was uh, the only of the five of us uh, to actually be able to attend high school and to attend college, to get a master's degree, right? To, to live a, a life that was bolstered through and by education. And so creating opportunities for students to feel safe in school and therefore attend school has been a priority for me. And it was actually subconscious when I got into this work, but I've learned how important it actually is for me to ensure that students can feel safe at school and be safe at school. To fast forward a few years through the boring and teenage years especially, I then sort of got into EMS and found that when I would respond to an emergency scene, oftentimes there was an opportunity for somebody to help, somebody to intervene, somebody to do something that would influence the outcome of the patient that we were there to treat. And for one reason or another, nobody had intervened yet. And so what I really discovered at that point was that I had to sort of merge these two passions, these two bits of excitement in my life, and to start helping people specifically in schools respond to emergencies and respond before 911 gets there, respond ideally even before the emergency happens, which is where that prevention you know, really is, is best fit or best suited. And that's what I do. Uh, and I have been able to do it for the last dozen years or so have an incredible team of folks all over the country that actually perform the work and some truly incredible schools that we get to work with day in and day out. Well, first off, thank you for sharing your story. That was amazing to hear. And it is amazing that like, it sounds like throughout your process, not initially understanding the connection, but kind of being here and reflecting back like, oh, you see the through line. And one thing, you know, I was looking at some of the videos that you've created and listening to a podcast that you were on. And it seems like your through line in regards to prevention is connection. For you in school, were there specific connections that you experienced that kind of showed you the power of them? And then you shared this quote that I just loved from Bene Brown. And I feel like everything she says could just be a quote, which is not fair, but whatever, that's besides the point. And the quote that you said is, connection is why we are here. It's what gives us purpose and meaning to our life. I would love to just talk about that for a second of kind of that, that through line of connection, what that means for you. Yeah, you know, it's interesting for, for me, connection actually was uh, sort of first established through my adoptive mom. And, and that was the relationship that changed the outcome and changed the course of my life. Um, and it's, it's obvious, right? And I, I can, I can see how clearly and how quickly my, my future shifted as a result of that relationship. That for me didn't happen in school. It happened really there a, a few years earlier. But what I've learned is that connection can happen from any relationship, should happen through any relationship, and those can absolutely be at school. We have had the opportunity to support schools of all sorts, so charters, public, independent, private, parochial, and in all of them, you can tell that there are adults on campus who are truly connected to students. And often, you can also tell that there are adults on, or I should say students on campus who for one reason or another are not connected to an adult on that campus. And so 
Although a lot of our work is, you know, we, we use terms like threat assessment or you know, lockdown or these kind of sterile sounding words, ultimately it really all boils down to can we create a connection for every student with an adult on campus so that when something happens in their life where they need support, where they need an extra eye, an extra hand, that we actually have the ability to provide that for them. So yeah, to, to when I heard Brene say that, that quote, and, and in fact, to your point, almost anything I've ever heard her say yeah. brings purpose. It, it brings clarity and context to my life. But certainly that one was one that stuck out. And it's actually become one of the pillars that we use in our sort of model for engaging with schools and especially engaging in and around emergencies. A question about the opposite of that, kind of the results of disconnection. Just in your research and, you know, on incidents in schools, and, and I don't mean just violent incidents, but obviously those are ones that pop into our heads. How much disconnection was present when we encounter all these problems? I, I'm guessing you've studied that, and I'd love to hear you speak about that. Yeah. I mean, in, in the most literal sense, what, what frustrates me after, and I'll take the extremes to start, and then maybe we'll, we'll talk about some, some more in isolated incidents, but what frustrates me about almost every active shooter event that we've seen, almost every large-scale um, act of violence that we've seen take place, and frankly, even some of the smaller student-to-student -student conflict or parent-to-parent -parent conflict or parent-to-student conflict, is there were signs, right? Those puzzle pieces existed because somebody had to go out and procure a weapon. Somebody had to have an incident occur that caused them to feel angry and that caused them to feel the need to seek vengeance or to escalate the situation. When we look at the data uh, around active shooters specifically, more than half of them are caused by uh, an escalation of a dispute, right? So, so that dispute had to happen in order for us to get to this point. And then following that, a whole bunch of steps had to happen. And obviously, organically and naturally, people saw those steps happen. It's likely that, that the same person didn't see each step. But in the most literal sense, that's the disconnection that leads to these events is we, we simply aren't taking the time to put these puzzle pieces together. And anytime I say that, I feel the need to also acknowledge that I, I don't want a Monday morning, Monday morning quarterback, right? My suggestion isn't that somebody in those environments has done something wrong, but instead that we have an opportunity going forward to really put those puzzle pieces together. And that's the strategy that I hope we can share with schools and I hope that we can share frankly, with everyone, right, any industry, any organization, that there are puzzle pieces. And so our opportunity is to make sure that we get them put together before the event takes place so that we can intervene and prevent the event from taking place in the first place. Steve, I love that you asked that question. And Chris, you, you do bring up kind of this theme of prevention, which we talk about quite a bit on this podcast. I think we tend to, and this is just my opinion, but we tend to living in educational settings that are still really reactive, whether it be to behavior, whether it be to services that kids need. And so the fact that you all are kind of trying to flip the switch and say, the days are done of being reactive. If we actually continue this, it's not going to work. So I'm wondering from this, this lens of being proactive, what are things that you're trying to do to support that for schools? It's an interesting time to ask that question um, because COVID-19 is a great example of an event that was predictable. We knew it was possible to have a, a global pandemic and 
in fact, there have been people championing the, the preparation for this work for decades and for this moment for decades. And, you know, do, does every school need to have a, a pandemic plan that articulates how they'll pivot from on-campus education to virtual education in a matter of 48 hours? Well, going forward, yeah, I suppose we do. Up until this point, would we have had the foresight, even, even the most prepared schools, would we have had the foresight to be that detailed? Probably not, honestly. Some of our schools that have done the work to be prepared, they, they probably were about 60% of the way there. But frankly, that's good enough. Our goal when it comes to sort of planning for big emergencies, for thinking ahead and identifying the potential risks that could, could come our way is really to do, again, to use a sterile term, a risk assessment. The process that I always like to use for this is to pull in the most negative, often the, the person who's been on campus for the longest and just absolutely is concerned about everything. And, you know, if you're listening to this, the person who just popped into your mind, that's that's the best person to bring into the room. Um, and of course, bring in the rest of, rest of your safety team or your risk management committee. But what you want to do is get a whiteboard marker and a whiteboard going and start naming the things that could happen on campus. Start naming the risks that could afflict your community or could impact your community in any way. And you should end up with a list of hundreds of things, especially if you brought in the right person um, who's come up with 80% of those things. You should truly have a list ranging from, you know, the, the obvious, right? Fire, earthquake, natural disaster, hurricane, tornado, depending on where you are, the student conflict, fights, all those things. If you've done a really good job, you'll also end up with sort of peculiar things on the list, like food poisoning or pest issues. And if you're really having a good time with it, you should end up with zombie apocalypse on the list. And, and that tells you that you've, you've succeeded. And in fact, I'd encourage you not to stop writing things on the board until you get to that point. But once you get there, then the next step is to essentially take those items that you've just put out and say, okay, what is the the probability that this event is going to happen? Um, what's the likelihood that this thing could happen? And there are scientific risk models and the actuaries at your insurance companies have them, right? They can actually give you a number. Sure. I'm not so interested in that. I'm, I'm curious about, you know, what are the things that you believe are most likely? Why do you believe they're most likely? And then the other side of this equation is, you know, what is the impact should this event occur? Zombie apocalypse is going to be a huge deal. Hopefully it's not likely, although we're not sure. Um, and so we don't probably need to put a ton of time, energy, and effort into planning for it. But a fire has a significant impact, right? And it also is fairly likely to occur on campus. And those items that kind of fall to the middle, or if you were to put this on a graph, the top right of the graph, they're most likely to occur as well as matched with the highest severity or the highest impact. Those are the items that you must build a plan for. And although that's a little bit of a tedious process or can feel like a little bit of a tedious process, the benefit to doing it at an individual school level is that each school has some different risks. And I can tell you that there is a high likelihood that for all schools, fire is going to be on that list that you must prepare for. For all schools, lockdown is going to be on that list that you must prepare for. For all schools, some form of natural disaster, depending on where you are, maybe multiple forms of natural disaster will make its way to that list. But then the Unique nuances that go along with each individual school. Is there a gas station down the street that may cause a particular concern? Is there a community that you're in that may cause a specific concern due to any number of, of factors? 
And so it's that work, I believe, that helps schools really identify what what are the things that we need to prepare for? What do we need to prioritize? And then, you know, you can use that over the course of months or years in some cases, if you have a huge list, maybe a years long process um, to truly develop excellent plans that you are at least 60% prepared for those. And then of course, as we all know, the best made plans are are really thrown out the window the moment the emergency happens. And so our goal is to get to 60% and then figure it out from there. It's interesting. I think what's coming up for me is one thing that we look at in regards to kind of leaders, admin, those in charge of taking care of the adults is very similar to what we look at for the teachers who are in charge of taking the kids. And so there's this theme that we're looking for with adults, right? We want adults that are attuned, attentive, responsive, and present. And I feel like to have those four things, right, which is the ultimate purpose of these adults, you've got to be pretty regulated. And I would think it would be hard to do a pretty thorough risk assessment if you are a dysregulated system. Do you see a, a parallel between that? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, frankly, the the time that most schools do these risk assessments is immediately following a newsworthy event that's happened elsewhere in the country. And so, you know, to your point, that's the moment where the school is least regulated, least, um, I love the the words you just used, um, at least present and likely least attentive to the comprehensive risk uh, matrix, they're really probably tuned into that specific incident, whether it was a misconduct event or a fire, whatever it might have been. But they're so incapable often of sort of getting out of that tunnel vision and thinking about the other types of risks that may present themselves. And so, yeah, I think, you know, one of the one of the signs that a school is doing this well is that it's actually happening on an annual basis. And that perhaps there's a, a task force that comes together after a major event that occurs elsewhere, but that task force is, is pre-assembled. It's, it's part of the routine. It's part of the process that yeah. the school uses yeah. um, in dynamic response to, to the day-to-day. Grainer, I, I want to give you a moment, but I also, and I don't want, you don't have to share this if you don't want, but I think what's coming up for me is the experience that you went through with your school and that natural disaster. I don't know if you'd be willing to share a little bit about that and how your community came back together after that. Chris, we went through a flood that destroyed about a third of our community, but significantly destroyed our school. So we had to, we had to move into a makeshift school and make adjustments on the fly. And of course, there was all sorts of new security issues that came with that. But I I think our response to that first was to make sure none of our teachers or staff fell through the cracks. And we went with staff connection first. That was the most important thing. And we had a summer to establish that and clean each other's homes and give places for people to live and, you know, just share life. But that turned out to be the most important move we could have made. And that connection led to a year where many people predicted we'd have many more critical incidents because of dysregulated kids. We actually had less critical incidents than in the normal year before. And I I think that comes back to that word preparation. The other thing that popped into my mind when you're going through that list is I know I'm the only person on on this call that had to prepare for nuclear war. And we did. Back in the 60s, we'd go into fallout shelters and eat these really good red and white candies. So maybe some old person on this call will be laughing with me right now. (laughs) But I, I do remember that. And that brings up a question that maybe we're going to get to later. But obviously, we got to drill. we got to practice. You've made that really clear to us. How do we do it without inciting fear? or dis, as Jessica said, without dysregulating our kids, just in the practice of security. 
and the adults dysregulate our adults. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I, I would like to get some feedback on that. I'll definitely answer that question. I, I love that. And I think that two thirds of my life is spent in uh, preparing for drills that don't terrify the community. But something you just said stands out that I, I really want to give, give credence to, which was that your focus after the flood in your community was on teachers and staff as a whole. I, I was just talking with Dr. Perry actually a couple of weeks ago about where we are in preparation for next year and you know what we need to do to help ensure that students are safe and secure and learn um, throughout the year. Of course, my focus is much more on safe and secure. I realize there are millions of brilliant minds working to ensure they can learn. Dr. Perry said, and I hope I'm quoting him correctly, uh, as go the teachers, so go the students. And and it was just this you know incredibly simple sort of orientation that I think we we all need when it comes to emergencies, especially around recovery. It's, it's easy to say we've got to focus on learning loss. It's easy to say we've got to focus on um, getting students back into classrooms or you know any number of other items that are absolutely critical. And, and again, from an education perspective, there's so much that exceeds my knowledge. But I do believe that if we can prioritize and focus on our teachers, focus on our staff, focus on our systems, and make sure that truly people are getting the support that they need at the adult level, we have a much better chance at them then being able to turnkey that and provide the same supports for their students. And so I, I just love that that was the approach that your school took. And I, I think that's, that's a phenomenal example of, of, frankly, what we would want others to do in isolated and small instances like, like that, small relatively, um, as well as yeah. large, you know, even global instances. I was just going to say, in terms of drills and and sort of you know how do you how do you get ready for that, right? How do you how do you work to establish protocol and ensure that people can understand it? Um, I'll go back to that risk assessment for just a second and say you know you you typically will end up with two or three or four absolutely critical events that you need to be prepared for. They're the highest likelihood, highest impact, and so once you've figured out that list. Those are the emergencies you should be drilling for. We use the phrase uh, default responses, which is to say that what we really want is those four emergencies that are most likely, most severe. We want everybody on campus to be able to respond to those and at least endure the first five to 30 minutes without any instruction whatsoever. And in order to do that, we have to take the protocols out of the playbooks, out of the emergency plans, the sad reality for me is nobody's ever read a full emergency plan, right? That's just not going to happen. And instead, what we've got to do is we've got to get people, we've got to get it into their bodies. We've got to get people an opportunity at the adult and student level to practice for those four events. And so it you know, starts there. That's how you determine what, what drills you should actually be doing. I think the second step is making sure that people know when drills are coming, especially at the beginning of the year. A phrase we use a lot is an imperfect drill is a perfect opportunity to learn. Our goal is not perfection. Our goal is not that people act in some scripted way that is completely different than their human way. Our goal is is kind of twofold. One, that we teach them something. And two, we learn from them. We learn from the people and we learn from the drill. And so our first few drills should be announced drills where everybody knows they're coming. Everybody is reminded yeah. of what to do and everybody goes through those processes and can build confidence. And then from there, we start doing drills that might be unannounced, but where we actually tell people that it's a drill, 
I've gotten a lot of questions over the last few years about lockdowns in particular, right? We, we know how much stress that those cause for students, for teachers, and people will say, should we perform lockdown drills and tell people that it's a drill, knowing that that might slightly nuance their behavior, that might nuance the level of, of urgency that they're they're taking to this response. And our belief is yes, that we should include as a part of the announcement that this is a drill. We should train people such that we ask them to participate as though it were a real emergency. And we should be training enough that their confidence is high, they know what to do, and therefore they're doing it quickly. But by telling them that it's a drill, we can also help them understand that it's a learning opportunity for them. And so I think that that's one of the most critical and and frankly, maybe controversial parts of our work right now is that we really want people to know not just what to do, not just what to expect, but also that it is a drill. And of course, we need to let them know when it's not as well. It fits so well with kind of what we know about learning and building tolerance. So there's specific stressors, right, that we look for in anything. And so we know patterns of stress that are predictable, that are moderate, and that there's an element of control. Doing that prescriptively over time is going to build resilience, is going to build tolerance. And that's, to your point, what you're trying to do. And I wrote down, I love it, like we got to get this into their bodies. And I had a sports analogy come that right down to my mind. Yeah, right. It's like, I guess it's, it's what a good coach does too. Of like, yeah. they're practicing with their athlete or a musician, right? You're practicing the thing that you want to experience when you're at a state that you can learn. So if we don't do these drills or there's an element that's going to kind of move and shift everyone into alarm, it's just not going to work in general. So knowing that there's a specific window of when, when learning happens is what you're targeting, it sounds like, which is, I've been there. I'm sure all of us remember fire drills. Last year, I was working directly in a middle school and I was there for a couple of them. And there's just nothing regulated about it for anybody. And I'm not saying that these should be regulated experiences, but I do think there's a way to be preventative in which there is an element of control for these kids. So I'm glad that you brought that up. Yeah. And in fact, I I think it goes even beyond the drill. Um, And oftentimes when we do faculty and staff training at the beginning of the year or in response to emergencies that have happened, you know, when we even use the word active shooter, you can see the hair on the back of some folks' neck stand. You can see people's shoulders come forward. You can see them tense up and you can also see them stop learning. And at that point, they're no longer engaging in the conversation. They're no longer engaging in the learning process. Exactly. You know, and, and frankly, for two reasons. One is they're terrified. That That's a really scary thought. And so I'll talk about a solution for that in just a moment. The second is the it will never happen here mentality that, that also is a, a one that we have to, to wrestle with because it's hard to imagine something like that happening in your community. And frankly, who would want to imagine something like that happening? Yeah, in exactly. A strategy we use for that that I love and, and think is, is a lot of fun is uh, as opposed to using, again, sort of tunnel visioning on lockdown here, but as opposed to using the, the you know, intruder on campus or the words active shooter, we'll define the protocol, but then we use the swarm of bees as the reason for lockdown as we do practice and as we talk through it. And what you can see is that a swarm of bees is scary. I'm, I'm not real thrilled about the idea of a swarm of bees. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> I don't have a specific allergy or any any you know acute reason to be more afraid than anybody else, but it's it, it does sound like you know something I'd prefer to avoid, and that often is the case for most of the people in the room. And so, you know, by using an example like that, using a scenario like that, we can have the same conversation, but people can engage in it because they're not afraid, or I should say, not as afraid. Not afraid, yeah. 
And they're certainly not thinking it won't ever happen here. Right? It's something that we can begin to envision um, as uncomfortable as it might be. I'm wondering, I don't want to pivot too much because I enjoy this conversation, but I think what's also coming up in regards to prevention, you were using the word kind of this overarching systematic risk assessment, but I work part-time for a school district out here in Colorado. And what we've seen in particular through this year is that when we were essentially fully in, in remote education, while we were still doing district threat assessments, they weren't as high as they had usually been. And then... I mean, I don't think my numbers are probably not 100% correct, but essentially like during those during those months, we were averaging about maybe 25 to 30 a month. And then when we got these kids back into in-person learning, our threat assessments, I want to say within the first week, we were at already around 40, which again, the numbers don't matter. It's just kind of that theme. And so I'm wondering from your perspective, like what makes a good threat assessment? I don't want to focus too much on COVID, but I think that's just the reality. So what makes a good threat assessment? What are you looking for? And then I do, I love that you just kind of own this of like a lot of this, the verbiage sounds really scary, which is unfortunate because it doesn't need to. How do you tackle that as well? I mean, I think for for so many of us, when we hear the words threat assessment, it sounds like this really sterile FBI level process. And, and frankly, it is, right? We're using the same strategies that are used for, for assessment of risk anywhere in the world and by any agency in the world. But I think at schools, it's it's really more like a connection assessment that we're doing. And so I encourage you to find language that fits your community better and that frankly allows your community to do these more frequently. We have some communities where it's compassion assessment um, because ultimately the end goal here is how can I take a student who's potentially at risk? And by the way, not at risk for becoming an active shooter, not at risk necessarily, right, for any of these huge scale or large scale or even medium scale type emergencies, but at risk for needing extra support. How do I take that student, assess whether or not that, that risk or that opportunity to provide care, compassion, connection is there? And then how do I actually respond to that by providing care, compassion, and connection. And so typically a, a, you know, a threat assessment team or a compassion assessment team, whatever you choose to use, will consist of the principal of the school. It will have at least somebody from your security team. And for those that don't have a security team, if you have a front office that where that person wears 86 different hats, security is typically one of them. And so it may well just be that person. Typically, it's also a dean if they're present, often a health person, either a health coordinator, a school nurse, your counselor. Again, if you don't have one at the school level, it might be a district level. That's okay. But really what we're trying to do is sort of surround the student with these different vantage points, these different perspectives and different risks that each of those people are looking for. And we're trying to say, what, where is this student? What does this student need right now? And incidentally, we use this for adults too, right? So where is this person? And what are the types of support that this person needs going forward? And we've revealed isolated eating disorders with a single specific student. We've revealed a, a student who is going through a divorce at home and who is beginning to really struggle with it. And therefore, their grades began to slip. Their art became really, really grim. Their uh, stories and poetry took a totally different tone. But what we did through this assessment was we put all those puzzle pieces together. So we pulled in the art teacher and said, hey, have you noticed anything different? And the art teacher said, yeah, I, for the first time, noticed a, a completely you know, concerning painting. And that alone maybe wasn't enough to cause alarm. 
But when we matched it with the poetry that was written, that was equally alarming from the English teacher, and then we matched it with the grades that were beginning to slip, and then we matched it with the fact that the student was no longer eating lunch with their friends on a specific place that they normally did, suddenly those puzzle pieces start to tell us that the student needs support. And one of the things that can be tough about our work is there are only a handful of supports that we can provide, right, as a safety and security organization. Yeah. And so in this particular case, it was that the student needed to re-engage with an adult on campus. And, and that's exactly what happened. The counselor was able to provide support. Grades eventually uh, returned to, to the, the level that they were before. And there was a home intervention that was done where, where everybody was able to talk about where the student was and what the student needed going forward. And so to me, that's really what threat assessment's about. Certainly, it can it can notice right and, and respond to the major events and and we do catch those here and there. But if your system is noticing students who are going through divorce or students who are developing an eating disorder or students who are bullying or being bullied, if your system is noticing those things, that means your system will also notice the bigger things. And so I celebrate those as victories and also, of course, encourage schools to provide the support that those students need. Can you unpack specifically and preemptively, how do schools do a, I love the words connection assessment, by the way, I think there'd be a hundred schools ready to do a fine connection assessment. I'm just trying to unpack it in my mind, just as a teacher early on, do we, do we sit down and talk about all of our kids and say, you know, where do we see risk? Where do we see adversity? I don't know. That's why I'm asking, but I'm very curious is the process. There are a couple layers here. So the first is probably to assign an owner of either safety or security or emergency management or health and wellness. And again, every school is going to be a little bit different about this. Some might even do it by, by committee or by team. All of those things are fine, but we want to make sure that there's a centralized person or team that is tasked with receiving these notifications. So I'll use um, I'll use Chris. Let's just say um, so. If, if an event happens on campus that is of concern, or an event happens even within the community, maybe a weekend party, something like that, that is of concern, everybody calls Chris and says, we, "You know, we just need you to know about this." Even by just establishing that single point of contact, or again, maybe team of contact, what we've done is we've we've actually created an opportunity for those puzzle pieces to be put together. And, and all we had to do was assign a single person or a single place for this information to go. Because now when you see a student that's in, in trouble or might be in trouble, you call them, you give them one of the puzzle pieces. And when the math teacher sees a student who's in trouble, they call them, they put one of the puzzle pieces down on the board. And suddenly this person or this team knows there, there might be some more work to do here. So I think that's the first step. And then the second step really is about making sure that everybody in the community knows to share that information with that person or with that team. And so really giving the agency to every teacher, every staff member, every contractor, lunch providers, security providers, transportation providers, if they notice something that is odd, if they notice something that's different, if they notice something that is unique, that they need to report it into that, that central location. And I'll tell you, there are tons of technologies that you can use for this too. There are text message-based systems. There are, you know, like suggestion boxes that we've seen schools put on the wall. The mechanism is so much less important than the fact that the information makes it to a central place and that we can start to put those pieces together. And once we do, then we pull that group together. And that's where our threat assessment or our connection assessment comes in. We pull that group together and say, what do we need to do here? 
Yeah, I that's like brilliant. That. Yeah, I like that. And again, it, it focuses on the preventative piece and parents getting divorced doesn't feel like something small to that student. So if they are in an environment in which, again, their adults are able to attune and respond to that, that's, that seems like a game changer to me, which I love. You also use this term um, security, right? You provide security, security guards. And so I'm, I'm assuming this is a little bit more of a, a hotter topic, just kind of in the uh, world that we live in right now uh, with police officers on campus. Could you talk us through kind of what does a security guard, what does that mean when you say this? What does that mean to you? How do you interpret that and conceptualize that? Yeah, this is definitely a, a hot topic and, and one that has some controversial areas within it, maybe many controversial areas within it. What I would say is just as for our threat assessment, the process is more important than the mechanism or the, the specific people or specific tools that we're using to do it. Security is actually the same thing as far as we're concerned. Our goal with security is that there are people and systems that are designed to keep an eye on the community as a whole. And one of the things with traditional security that is really valuable is if you imagine a, a car line where you've got drop-off happening in the morning, security, or for elementary schoolers, maybe teachers, are the some of the only people on campus that actually see into the car and can begin to put a, a, some of the pieces together around what might be happening for that student in their home life. Often our security officers are the ones who say to us, this student had a really bad morning this morning. I know that because, fill in the blank, they didn't have their Starbucks with them or they were eating their cereal out of a bowl in the car and just trying to, to eat it as quickly as they could because clearly they weren't able to eat it at home. Or the student was still getting dressed on the way to school, you know, right? And we can we can pull those pieces out. And and again, isolated, none of those things are necessarily cause for immediate concern. Certainly don't don't meet the threshold for pulling a threat assessment together. But that's our goal is we want to have an, an additional vantage point that again in that particular case is kind of into the student's morning routine and morning experience. In other cases might be at the end of the day where a last student is still on campus at five or six or seven or later. Why did that happen? If, especially if that was a student who is not traditionally left at school for an extended period of time and, and or not in a, a program of some sort. So it's, it's really that what we want is we want eyes on all of those maybe peripheral to campus activities that are taking place, as well as um, not in-classroom activities that are taking place. So our hallways, our cafeterias, all of those items as well. And I think, again, if we sort of orient our goal with security to how can we get more information as opposed to how can we be these strong, big, scary beings that are uh, responding to major emergencies on campus, that's that's one step to really good security. Let's let's focus in on on information gathering. I think another piece is: Are we able to effectively build relationships with students such that they're actually coming to security and talking with them about concerns that they have? We established that our goal is to have connection for students with adults on campus, and security are adults on campus. Let's not exclude them from those relationships, right? Instead, let's really work intentionally to bring them into those relationships and make them also adults that students can turn to and can share questions with and share concerns with. And so I would say that, you know, again, barring the, the issues of whether it should be police or armed or unarmed or any of those other things, which each individually are, are big questions to wrestle with for any given school. I think the most important piece is that we have somebody out there looking for information and that we create real relationships with students. I think that's what good security means. 
can you talk to us about how you train that? Or do you do you train security people? Is that part of your work? And if you do, I'd like to know a little bit about that training and, and a little bit about retention. Is it a job? that Because that seems really important. This sense of safety is also a sense of familiarity with a person that doesn't change all the time. There are layers and layers to security training. We do absolutely provide security training, um, both for our own officers and for schools officers. And like health coordinators, like really anybody else, if we're doing this for our own folks, our goal, our, our training really is about relationships and connection first. And so it's fairly easy to quote unquote, provide security. I held up air quotes as though people can see. It's fairly easy to, to provide security. Um, Don't worry, on- Jessica does it all the time. Uh, glad to know. <laughs> Very true. Very true. <laughs> you know, the, the job of, of, of being a presence on campus, the job of, of standing post, right? Those are things that are really, they're so prescriptive that they're, they're relatively easy to do. But the hard part is, you know, how do I know what information I'm getting that's not artifact that I actually need to react and respond to? Or how do I know when a student's approaching me, not just to say hi, but because they have a concern they want to share with me? And how do I know when and how to make space for that and how to do that in a way that respects boundaries, but also respects the need for that student to engage? And so that's really what our training tends to be about. We uh, work with an incredible leader on boundaries, specifically named Monica Applewhite, who has designed the playbook for creating healthy and wholesome relationships between adults and students. We have folks that come in and actually do uh, work with security on uh, body posture and you know the differences because often security officers don't have the background or experience to know that when a second grader talks to you and they're much smaller than you are that you, you need to get down to their level and have a conversation with them so it's things like that that make a difference for the relationship between the officer and the and the student and then we do a lot of work around um, investing them into the community as a whole my favorite example of this is we were training a group of, of officers at a school and, and I happened to be there. We do a marshmallow challenge with them. It's this team building event. And, and I think I was there to film that actually. But uh, we, we left the room that we were working in and we were doing a tour of the building, orienting new officers to, to show them you know, all around and areas that they need to be concerned for and what have you. And we reached a, a gate that was locked and a, there was a padlock on it. And nobody knew the code, which uh, we were the new team on, on campus. And so, you know, hadn't built the, the list of all the, the alarm codes and access codes and things like that yet. And so we thought we were stuck and we started to turn around. And one of the security officers said, try 1908. And I can't tell you what school this is now, I realize, but they said, try 1908. <laughs> And so we did, and it worked. And we said, how in the world could you have known that? You're, you know, they'd been at the school for a total of four hours and certainly not learned the codes yet. And they said, well, it's the year the school had been founded. And so it would make sense that, that a date like that would, would be a code. And I won't comment on whether or not that's a great idea to, to you know, set your padlocks to, the, to years like, like that that can be so easily known. But the, the intent is, and, and the message we learned was that if you're investing officers in the community, often very much like we invest teachers in the community, the knowledge can be there and the access can be there. And in, in terms of retention, it's security and, and frankly, a lot of the, our, our staff roles are, are relatively short-term employment jaunts, right? We, we often engage with folks who want to be in their current role for three to five years, and then they want to go on and do something bigger and more robust in their worlds. And it's not to say that there's anything wrong with being a security officer, a health coordinator, a consultant for life. 
that's what I've frankly built my life around. But what we try to really build is the systems that allow us to develop quick relationships and effective relationships from day one. And then that actually allow us to transition those relationships to the newer folks as they come on board. You know, in that way, a three to five year jaunt can actually be a, a really transformative experience, both for the school and for the officer. The theme of intentionality, I was, this was several years ago, I was training a district's security team, very similar to your story. And I was teaching them about the impact of stress, right? So when a student is stressed, it has to drive what we do. And the ultimate goal is to provide interventions that meet the student where the student is at. This was completely brand new information to them. They have been trained with kind of a one size fits all. Like when I show up, I'm going to be, I don't want to say authoritarian, right? But just set the thing. And so the fact that I could give them permission to say, you know, I actually just need you to focus on relationships right now, or I actually just need to focus on regulating the student right now and they, their mind was blowing but the their intention was nothing malice no one had taught them other they didn't know that this was another option so i'm really glad that you kind of bring that to light are you and if so how are you addressing kind of the cultural uh, components that come up for security officers right i feel like this is a big piece as well yeah, that there has to be this cultural awareness and competency piece yes <laughs> Talk about a, a, a challenging question. There, yeah, there are yeah. so many layers to that, to be sure. I think, you know, maybe a couple of, of really actionable thoughts and ideas that at least we're focused on right now. One is we've got to have a, a security team and frankly, adults on campus, not just security, that look like, talk like, act like, and and connect with students. And so... You know, often our, our challenge is actually finding security officers or any other staff that, that we're going to support the school with from that local community, whether it's, you know, in the middle of an urban area or in a rural area or somewhere else. Um, we want to ensure that the people who are protecting the community actually can be invested in it because they have some ownership and because often they're from that neighborhood or from that, that specific area or community. And so I think, you know, a starting point is making sure that we are, are picking the right people. And again, sometimes that means picking people who aren't necessarily 40 year experienced security officers, but instead who are excellent relationship builders and who we can then train to be security officers for that specific area or school or community. So I think that's one piece. I think another is, and you just mentioned it, sort of meeting people where they are. A lot of our training is around understanding the different sort of perspectives that each role in the school, each stakeholder group in the school has. And so understanding that parents have one very specific ask of security, and that is to keep their kids as safe as they possibly can. And then some, <laughs> and the teachers have a very different perspective when it comes to security. Their goal is is really to protect themselves, rightfully so. Their their goal is to make sure that if there's a concern they need to know about, that they do know it. And students, frankly, are there and asking the security officer to be fun, be funny, have a relationship with them, give a fist bump when they walk by, not during COVID, but otherwise to, to be a, a person that they can connect to. And and so once we sort of unpack and understand the different perspectives, the asks of the different community members or stakeholder groups, I think the cultural competencies can go up because we're able to then just educate around it and, and it's a very structured conversation. But again, it seems like your, your ultimate goal is to 
shift, right? The sense of security, the sense of relationship. If we can build a culture in which this is highly valued in general, that preventative care means that we are going to have a stronger likelihood of preventing something from happening, right? Like, so it's not just your focus on this group of people here and this group of people here. Like, no, it's it's everybody. We may have an identified security team, but if we don't help the teachers understand their value in that, the support staff, right? People that serve the meals, that get these kids to school. When you can make that happen and that sense of community and that culture, that's the hard part to kind of get through. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm guessing it really affects teacher retention as well. The work that you do, it'd be interesting to hear your comment on that. When schools feel secure and connected as you're proposing, I'm guessing teachers stay. Yeah, I mean, there's some really phenomenal data at the national and local level around student retention, students' attendance. um, And we know for a fact that students who feel safe at school will attend school. And the numbers range by community, but somewhere between 60 and 80 percent more often than students who don't. And I, I'm giving that data actually backwards. It's it's students who are who feel unsafe in school are 60 to 80 percent more likely to be truant. So I should just... Mm-hmm give the data the way that it was meant to be given. We don't have quite the same degree of, of data yet on teachers and teachers' relationship with, state, with safety and how that impacts their retention. But I can say anecdotally, and, and after a dozen years of, of work with teachers and with schools in this area, that it absolutely makes a difference that teachers who feel safe at school, and I think you know, if we really try to unpack and define what it means to feel safe at school, Partially, that's um, confidence that they know what to do in the event of an emergency. Partially, it's that they know who to turn to if they don't know what to do. And frankly, partially, it's that you know, emergencies that happen, happen, and they're able to overcome them as, as small or large as they may be. And so I think those are kind of the drivers for teachers' confidence or teachers' perception of safety on campus. And absolutely, if they are, they're feeling safe at school, if they're feeling that they know how to respond to emergencies at school, that's going to play a difference and, and, and going to put, have an impact on whether or not they choose to be on campus going forward. You said the sense of confidence. Do you ever partner with like universities to kind of start teaching this to teachers before they get in the real world? I think for Steve and I and the line of work that we do, it's not abnormal for us to go and teach about the brain. And I do a lot of teaching on crisis management. Like, what do we do when we are in a crisis with the kid? What do I do as the adult? And you will have teachers that have been in the field for 15 years and be like, no one has taught me this. And so I'm just thinking of kind of the work that you do. It'd be really good to get this to a teacher before they're like four to five years and like, oh, is that something that you do? I don't know your thoughts on that. Maybe I sound crazy. It sounds like you just gave us a whole new uh, division in our organization. (laughs) (laughs) My my start date is tomorrow. I will be in Santa Monica (laughs) immediately. I can't wait. It's a brilliant idea. We we haven't. I would say that you know we do do a lot of teacher conferences and um, events once teachers are on campuses and in education, but we haven't yet reached that sort of early stage for them, which is um, you know, a lot of our work is always going back to the source, and and we frankly miss the opportunity to do that at this point. Yeah, poor Steve. He's so sick of me, but I say it all the time. I'm like, I love what I do. I don't ever want to not do what I do, Steve. So please don't hear that. But it's I didn't hear it. there's I didn't hear okay, great. Word. That there's still an element that even if we do what we do and we're phenomenal at it, it's still a little bit reactive, right? Because they've been in the field. And so that's what I was hearing this whole time as well. I was like, man, it would be great if they could get into some universities and talk about the basics before graduation. This is what we're trying to do as well. So we'll have to talk about that afterwards. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. I love it. Well, Chris. 
thank you so much for giving us your time. Yeah. We always say this to our guests, you know, like, well, we know you're so busy. We know you're busy, right? Like we are wrapping up a school year of COVID. Your agency is being called upon to the nth degree to help prepare schools. So we we appreciate you kind of chunking out a time for us. It was amazing talking to you. I learned so much and I hope our listeners did as well. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. It's yeah. been great to connect with you. So yeah. fun. Uh, thank you for being here, Chris.